Let's pray. Our great God and King, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to come to your word today. We thank you for the picture that we have here of your son, Jesus, who is raised, who is made alive, but more than that, who creates and sustains all things, but is also the perfect man. As we consider your word today, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds, that you would help us see clearly what it is that you are saying to us, and that you might encourage us as we read your word to know more about who you are and who we are before you. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It's our desire to want to understand the true nature of things. If we see something complicated, we want to be able to pull it apart and understand what's going on inside. We want to know how things fit together and what goes with what. And it's not just the outside world that we want to understand. We want to know ourselves better. Philosophers have posed questions time and time again about what it is really to be human. People go on journeys and quests to discover themselves. They invest time into working out how to unlock their secret or hidden potential. We want to know what the essential essence of what it is to be human really is. What is it that makes us who we are? Is it the way that we live? Is it the character traits that we show? is that in it in life, we live and we die. Certainly, our human existence is framed by our expectation of death, and it seems to so define our lives, the beginning and the end, that we can't think of humanity without it. But is that the way that human nature is supposed to be? Are we supposed to frame our identity by our birth and our death? Well, in order to answer this question, we need to look at what the Bible says about what humanity is. And to understand this, we can do no better than to look at Jesus. That in itself presents a bit of a problem. For millennia, people have struggled to understand exactly who Jesus was. Books have been written. Debates have been had. This, but this struggle isn't new. It was the disciples who first asked the question, who is this man? Even the winds and the waves obey him. The early church often wrestled with understanding whether Jesus was man or God or both or more one than the other. And this dichotomy continues to plague us even today. But fortunately for us, the writer of Hebrews helps us understand this very vital question. Because as we understand who Jesus is, we can understand who we are before God, what it means to be human, and begin to finally understand what it means to live as a renewed and recreated person with God as our Father, Jesus as our brother, and the Spirit living within us. If you sat down and you broke up the book of Hebrews, you'd very quickly group the first eight chapters into a series of statements about the character of Jesus and his role in salvation in its varying different forms. 
We've already looked at the first two over the last few weeks. We've said that Jesus is superior to the angels. And we've said that his message is superior to the message of the angels. I love the language that we've picked up in the first chapter about Jesus. Because the writer of Hebrews goes to great lengths to show us just how great Jesus really is. Just in case you've forgotten, or it's a little bit foggy sitting back there, let's go back and have a look at some of these phrases used to describe Jesus in chapter 1. It starts off by saying that he is the heir of all things in verse 2. He has made, had the universe made through him. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of God's being. He is sustaining all things in verse 3. He's seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. He's superior to the angels in verse 4. He's God's son in verse 5. He's worshipped by angels in verse 6. His throne will last forever and ever in verse 8. He's above his companions in verse 9. What a glorious set of language. We are left with no doubt as to the supremacy of Jesus in all things. He is powerful. His throne is eternal. He is definitely godlike in his being. In fact, these attributes show that he is divine, God himself. But if we reflect on verse 3 of chapter 1 again, we are reminded that Jesus is the exact representation of God's being. Certainly in the context of what we have read so far, this is clearly speaking about Jesus as part of the Godhead. But as we look at the passage today, we're going to focus on another aspect of what it means for Jesus to be the exact representation of God's being. By looking at another essential aspect of Jesus' character, he is created as man in the image of God. You see, the author didn't want us to miss the other side of the story. Even though Jesus is so great, he is also completely human. If you've never really stopped to think about this, then take a moment to do so now. Jesus, the one about who we've just read all of those great things, is fully human in every way. And what does it really mean that Jesus was fully human? What can we learn about ourselves and God as we understand this? What effect does this have on our understanding of what it means for us to be human? What role do we have in God's created world? How can we be encouraged by Jesus as we look at his life and what he did? As if these questions weren't enough, what we'll see over the next few weeks is how Jesus' humanity, in fact, Jesus as the perfect man, is absolutely essential to both God's great work of salvation and Jesus' ongoing work in our sanctification. I think the author knew that this was a hard concept to understand. And so even though we're reeling from the existential question that I've just posed to us, the writer wanted to give his readers a more gentle introduction to the concept. And that's where we start today's passage, picking up from where we left off last week. It's not to the angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You have made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. It's very easy when we read this to jump straight to thinking about Jesus because we've already been talking about him. We've seen how all creation is subject to him. 
But if we do so, we do ourselves a disservice in understanding the richness of what we're reading here in Hebrews. We don't clearly understand God's plan or Jesus' character because when the original readers were reading this passage, that's not where they would have gone straight away. This lovely passage from somewhere is in fact a quote from Psalm 8, which Gilbert read for us earlier in today's service. The psalm is a wonderful psalm of praise to God for his work of creation. It's quite short, so let's start by reading it again today. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider the works of your heaven, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. All flocks and herds, all the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This psalm echoes a lot of the words we read in chapter 1. It speaks of God's great creation. It speaks of God's work in creation. And it speaks of his ultimate control over all of creation. But perhaps the most significant thing that stands out for us, for us as we read Psalm 8 is that it is definitely centred on mankind as the ruler of creation. And it's not directly about Jesus. Look, about, look at how the writer talks about man, insignificant in God's great work, and yet given the authority to rule over all of creation. It's a beautiful picture of the created order of the world, with God at the head and us ruling over creation under him. But this isn't a new concept. In fact, it reflects the words of Genesis 1 that God spoke as he created man. And this is what it says in verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? It was part of God's created order for man to rule over the world. And the psalmist is reflecting on this as he wrote his words. The readers of this letter would have had these wonderful words of Psalm chapter 8 rolling through their mind. And they would have had the created words of Genesis chapter 1 rolling through their mind. And they would have seen it in man, fulfill, in it, man fulfilling his role in creation. But when we read it and we see echoes of the language that's already been used to describe Jesus, we're also seeing something that's completely right. In fact, this is the connection that the writer of Hebrews is trying to get us to draw. The writer of Hebrews keeps going after the psalm and says, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honour. Something very subtle but very significant is going on here. I know I've said it today, but let me re-emphasize. 
the writer of Hebrews is reminding us of the humanity of Jesus. God's creation pattern for the world is that man is to rule over creation. And Jesus is doing this now, fulfilling God's plan. And it's at this point that we start to see the beauty of the argument that the writer of Hebrews is starting to put together. And those next words of Genesis 1 ring true. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So what does it mean for us to be in the image of God? Well, the answer is to look at Jesus. Even though we've looked at him so far as a majestic being, we are reminded that he is the perfect man as well. And we look at those words from chapter 1, where we are told that Jesus is the exact representation of God. He is the image of God. And here we see more of what this means. While God's grand design for humanity was frustrated by sin and disobedience, in Jesus we see perfect order restored. And the start of God's purposes to restore man to his rightful place, ruling over all of creation. This is something definitely worth taking a few moments to stop and reflect on. We don't often think about our place as rulers over creation. In fact, as evangelical Christians, we are so frequently focused on sinful humanity that we don't, uh, and on our unworthiness before God, that we don't want to place any more emphasis on ourselves than we absolutely have to. But it's important that we don't ignore God's created pattern for mankind. In our own way, we already have rule over parts of our lives. We have control over how we spend our time. We have control over how we care for our family. We have control over how we care for our environment. We have control over how we relate to others. We should ask ourselves the question, what do we do with this control? Can we live out God's plan for us right now? We might be tempted to avoid the question. But as we think about this, and as we realise how far we fall short, it helps us understand even more about our failings before God and how much the perfect image of God that is to be in man has become marred. You see, unlike Jesus... Our desire to rule is frustrated by our fallen identity. Dominion over our creation and our creativity eludes us. Our knowledge of the world, however extensive it may become, is never complete, and perfection is always out of our grasp. Technology consumes our resources and time. We live in fear of other people, what they might do to us, what they might do to our family, what they might do to our community or our world. We can't care for our environment as we know we should. But Jesus lives in perfect harmony with God's creation, ruling over it and caring for it as God intended when he created man. We should long for the day when all of creation is restored to this perfect pattern and we, alongside our saviour, can finally fulfil this part of our created destiny 
and truly live out our intended creation purpose. But there's a greater depth to the writer's understanding of what this looks like. And he wants us to understand it more fully. So let's look again at verse 9. It says, But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honour, because he suffered death. Jesus is worthy to receive this glory and honour, this place within the created world, because he suffered death. What an amazing paradox. Even though all of creation is subject to him, he is humbled in his death on the cross. Again, this goes to the heart of what it means to be truly made in the image of God. The rule over creation is not self-centered or self-serving. It is self-sacrificial. This adds a vastly new dimension to our understanding of man's rule over creation. We need to understand that it is through being humbled, through putting others above ourselves, that we reflect the image of God, as Jesus did when he suffered death on the cross. We need to know that we have been created to rule over this creation, but that we have also been created to serve each other. This is what it means to be an image bearer of God. In fact, this is what it means to be fully human. As we understand this more and more, we begin to see just how much of a model for us Jesus really is. He is the perfect man in every way. This affects us now as we seek to serve each other and live out the lives in his church as his people. It affects the way that we relate. It affects the way that we spend our time. It affects the way that we treat the created world. But it's also a promise for the future. We look to Jesus as the first of those who are raised and to the day when we will live forever with him, with this perfect pattern of creation restored in our lives. But the writer of Hebrews doesn't stop there. He wants to further enrich our understanding so that we can understand the depth and the significance of Jesus' humanity. You see, not only was Jesus worthy of glory and honour because he died, he was made perfect through suffering. Look with me at verse 10. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom, through, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. I've long struggled with this verse. How can Jesus not already be perfect by being the Son of God, by being in very essence God? What does it really mean for him to be made perfect through suffering? But as we look at the context that we've already threaded through this passage, the writer is not pointing out some deficiency in the character of Jesus, but rather reflecting on the true extent of his humanity and the necessity of his suffering to fulfill that role. So when we ask ourselves, how exactly is it that Jesus is made perfect through suffering? We've already considered the answer. In his suffering, Jesus put the rest of mankind before himself. He ultimately faced death for us. But his suffering is vital because it also reflects our existence. 
Jesus' suffering was not just in death. We know that we suffer in many ways. We suffer ill health, we suffer stress, we suffer pressure, we suffer the loss of loved ones, we suffer so many more things. But we don't have to go too far into the story of the Gospels to see plenty of examples of Jesus, Jesus suffering these same things. We also suffer as we wrestle with sin. And so when we look at verse 18, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is also able to help those that are, temp- that are being tempted. We are reminded that the perfect man, Jesus, suffered temptation just as we do. But how does that help us when we're tempted? In many ways. But we can immediately reflect on his perseverance to continue to be obedient to God's perfect plan for humanity. This gives us hope and confidence that he can help us beat temptation. Because when we're faced with that difficult moment of decision, when we know the right thing to do and we are tempted to do the wrong thing, we can look back on the life of the perfect man and be reminded that just like him, we are made in the image of God. And we are being renewed by the Holy Spirit which lives inside us. And even as we're faced with that temptation to sin, as we struggle with that decision, we can make the same choice thanks to our renewed nature to truly follow God's design and pattern. Verse 11 says, Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. You see, it's this humanity that allows us to be welcomed into God's family. It's not that God has adopted us in a way that a family might adopt a pet for a period of time. He is really human as we are, and so we are not just part of his family, but we are more than that. We are his brothers. This is significant because just as his humanity ensures that, as, that he can help us as we suffer and face tempta- temptation, his humanity and familiarity with us was necessary so that he could act faithfully as he fulfills his role as mediator between us and God. In verses 16 and 17, it says, For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. We won't spend much time today looking at what it means for Jesus to be a high priest, but it's important to reflect on the fact that his suitability for this role is driven fundamentally by his human nature. His ability to act mercifully and faithfully to us comes because we are his brothers, we are his family, image bearers of God, just as he is. In fact, this reflects the words of Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. When we look at Jesus, we see a man that was perfectly consistent with this. We see one who reflects God's character, his justice, and his mercy, 
and continues to fulfill this role even now as he rules over all creation. It's not something that was part of his character and then stopped. It's something that is part of his character and continues to be every day of his life, which is eternal. If you look at some of the comments that have been made in the world political sphere this week, it doesn't take a very hard look to see that our world has this backwards. Media reports would suggest that our leaders think that to rule means to act with justice and that there is no place or need for mercy. But as we look to Jesus, we see the perfect man, our brother, who holds these two concepts together in perfect harmony. And he does it because he is at his very core, human. But there is one last thing we need to reflect on. One truth that is buried within this text, but it is so rich in joy that we can't let it pass us by. We started today by reflecting on how frequently we define our human existence by our birth and death. But just as we've seen that God's created pattern for mankind was to rule over creation, we also need to remember that it was not part of God's created pattern for mankind to die. Death is the curse that is a product of our sin, the same sin and rebellion that led us to usurp God's plan for us to rule and exercise our dominion over creation. And it's with this in mind that we come to one of the most significant truths about Jesus in verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. You see, I think that this is one of the most key things about this chapter 2 as we look at Jesus' character. He is restoring in himself God's created pattern for the world. And ultimately, that leads to him ruling over creation, to sacrificially serving others, but to delivering us from death. Jesus' humanity allowed him to die and in doing so, destroy the power of death that has held us in slavery since the creation of the world. We fear what is to come. But we know that even though death may claim our mortal bodies, we will be raised just as Jesus was raised. His death restores the created order for mankind in the way that God intended it because he defeats the devil who holds the power of death. And so we do not need to live with our existence defined by the mere number of years that we have on this earth because our being is now eternal. We are being remade so that not only will we exercise self-sacrificial rule over creation, but our existence will no longer be framed by death. Think about how much of our time as individuals and as a society is driven by this fear. How much energy we put into seeking to preserve what precious life we have on this earth because we are concerned about what death will hold. 
We are scared of the end of this life. We don't want to see the end. But as we think about the fact that we are free from this fear, it's almost scandalous. But it's written here for us in black and white. Jesus, through his death, frees us from the fear of death. Think about what opportunity this gives us to be different in this world. Sure, death will come, but we need to, no longer need to live as though we are defined by it. For for us, death is not the end. It's just the beginning. This life is just an entract for us in the eternity that we will spend living and fulfilling God's perfect created plan for us. Even though we don't see it now fully, we are being remade once more in the image of God. This life will pass away, but this is just a temporal part and a necessary part as we finally are remade as God wanted man and designed for man to be made in the beginning. And that identity as image bearers of God which we already have, will be made perfect in us just as it is perfect in Jesus now. And we will live for eternity with our brother, Jesus, the perfect man, our redeemer and friend. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for the truth that we can see as we read this chapter of what man really is. Oh God, thank you for the encouragement that we can have as we look to Jesus, who is the perfect man, the author of our salvation, who even now lives and rules over this creation as you intended for us, but shows in that self-sacrificial service. Thank you that as we look to Jesus, we can be encouraged and truly reminded that he is human, that he is part of our family, and that through him we are welcomed into your family. Thank you that as we look at Jesus, we can be reminded that death is not the end, but that to be human is to be eternal, and that through him, we can, and because of him, we can finally live out the created purpose that you have for us in our lives. Well, God, thank you that through his death you have brought us into your family. You have made a way for us to be made perfect with you. Lord God, we pray that you would continue to remind us of this and encourage us to live as your people, to be human fully human in the way that you intended us to be, reflecting your character in this world. Amen.